The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest-growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. Today on The Horse Race, how ambitious is the governor's housing bond bill? Will the state turn people away who are seeking emergency shelter? And will the new Green Line cars really be, well, super? It's Thursday, October 19th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, here this week with my co-host, Lisa Kaczynski. Jen Smith is off this week. And Lisa, I've got to ask, because it's hard for me to keep track, where are you right now, Massachusetts or New Hampshire? Depending on when you, dear listener, are hearing this, um, either state could be (laughs) the real answer. More likely than not right now, New Hampshire, because we are in the middle of filing period where everyone uh, crams into a tiny little office in the Secretary of State's office in Concord, New Hampshire, to watch candidates pay their $1,000 and file for the yet-to-be-set primary, because we still don't actually know when that is. That's wild, actually, that we still at this point don't know when the New Hampshire primary is. It's usually set by now, isn't it? Yes, but they they can drag it out, and they are dragging it out in part because of the mess on the Democratic side. Most people expect that it's going to be January 23rd, which is about a week after Iowa's GOP caucuses. But the Secretary of State, I've heard indications that he might not set it until December, which seems wild, but I think things like this have happened before. Okay, so the situation right now is basically the candidates are traipsing through one by one, paying their fees put their name on the ballot. And then usually at this point, there's also just a slew of town halls and, you know, listening sessions and campaign events and candidates basically trying to do anything they can to get in front of voters. Is that more or less what's going on right now this cycle? Well, actually, the answer is yes and no. Campaigning in general, we actually just ran a story about this um, on Politico's uh, kind of national site about how campaigning is down across all of the early states from what it was the last time there was a big Republican cycle, um, you know, in 2015, 2016. And that includes in New Hampshire. I mean, campaign events in September, which is typically when things ramp up after Labor Day, was just a fraction this year of what it was the last time it was a Republican cycle. But we just saw the entire field and are in the middle of seeing the entire field in New Hampshire um, between a cattle call put on by the state GOP and between filing period. Trump is here a couple of times. He's coming back next week. Every other candidate is stopping through at least once. And yes, there are a lot of town halls. And it's really it's an interesting time because there is no other early state right now in which the race for second place, not for first, because that's still very much Donald Trump. The race for second place is as fluid. You know, DeSantis's polling decline and not coming to New Hampshire for seven weeks really opened things up in the state. But we're also seeing the, you know, kind of emerging and worsening conflict in the Middle East kind of overshadowing what candidates would normally be talking about at this point on the trail. 
And of course, New Hampshire is the place that likes to think of itself as where you can come and do a bunch of town halls and hang out at the dump and help people with their garbage and go to the library and read to kids and somehow become president. So a lot of retail politicking, basically. I don't mean to make light of it. The Lisa's cracking up. I'm sorry, the dump really got to me. I don't I don't know if I've seen that one yet, but it's pretty close to that, actually. <laughs> is that I mean, is that the path that candidates are trying to follow this cycle? Or have they kind of learned from what Donald Trump did in 2016, where he basically said, you know what, I'm not doing that and won anyway? Well, that is some of the reason that you are seeing less on the ground and less of that kind of traditional, yes, taking people's garbage to the dump, but also, you know, the shaking hands, the town halls, candidates are still coming and doing that. But there is a recognition because of Trump that he didn't need to do that to win, you know, two cycles over to win the nomination. And also because of the rules for making the debate stage this time, a lot of candidates, especially candidates like Chris Christie, who did 100 town halls in New Hampshire in 2016, you're now seeing him in New Hampshire less. He's he's said outwardly he's not going to do the same thing this time around as he pivots to more TV appearances to get the polling and the donors that he needs to make those debate stages. And you're seeing other candidates do that, too. All right. So you're breaking news up in New Hampshire and also back here in Massachusetts. You've broken a bit of news as far as who's running for what. You have a comment from current House Speaker Mariano. So, Lisa, what did he say this week? Well, all credit to Chris Van Buskirk and Colin Young for asking these questions. But basically, they posed the end of a chat after the House Democratic Caucus on Tuesday whether House Speaker Mariano, who's 76, would be running for reelection and whether he'd be running for another term as speaker. So the answers are effectively, yes, he's running for re-election. Yes, he intends to run for speaker again. But where it gets interesting is they asked, will he serve out the remainder of his next term? And he said, that remains to be seen. So maybe we have a speaker race sooner than we think, or later than we think for people who thought that Mariano was going to pack up and leave at the end of this year. I don't know. Very interesting. And of course, it calls back to the last House Speaker, Bob DeLeo, who left in the middle of his last term, which created the Speaker election, which ultimately led to Speaker Mariano taking the gavel. So very interesting and definitely a story we'll be keeping an eye on over the next couple of years. Other things we're keeping an eye on is the ever-present and never-answered question, why are we here today, Lisa? Well, I think, and this is, I'm sure that this is hurting Jen to not be here right now. We're going to talk about housing and the MBTA, two of her favorite topics. I'm so, so sorry, Jen. I, I hope that we're able to do this justice. We're also going to be talking about these new limits on the state's emergency shelter system that the governor is placing as it nears capacity and trying to figure out whether that's actually legal. All right. Well, as Jen would say, if she were here, giddy up. We've been talking about a housing crisis in Massachusetts for years. Now Governor Maura Haley is taking her first major swing at solving it, or at least improving it, in a new bond bill that she rolled out Wednesday that also effectively serves as her housing policy blueprint. Here to discuss what's in the bill and what isn't is BFF of the pod, Katie Lannon of GBH News. Welcome back, Katie. Always glad to join you guys. So can you explain to us what's in this bill, just kind of in the broad terms, and tell us why we've all been waiting on this for so long? 
Yeah, there's a lot in here. And as you said, the reason people have been waiting to see it is because it does lay out what Governor Healy's plan is for combating the housing crisis. There is a housing bond bill in Massachusetts pretty much every five years. So it's a a routine matter in one way, but the Healy team has been describing this as historic in scope. It proposes $4 billion in uh, borrowing or capital spending authorizations, whatever term you want to use. And that's more than twice as big as the last housing bond bill that we saw Governor Baker, then Governor Baker, sign in 2018. The Healy bill has a major focus on public housing with around $1.6 billion in money eyed for that area, including for repairs, modernization, accessibility upgrades, decarbonization projects like the installation of heat pumps. And, you know, the other thing that people have been really watching to see beyond just the spending authorization is there's a lot of policy in here. There's more than two dozen policy changes, which range from the kind of weedy things that matter to people in the housing community, but to a, you know, a renter or a homeowner, you might not be able to wrap your head around them and some major shifts. Um, One of the big things is that it would allow communities to opt into imposing transfer taxes on high value real estate sales. That's something that communities like Boston, some towns in the Cape and Western Massachusetts have been fighting for for years, but haven't been able to get the legislature on board with. So Healy could really be shifting the political dynamics around that issue. And we certainly want to get into all the details. But as you noted, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of big things. And suffice it to say, the press conference that's happening right now is a very high energy affair, right? As animated as we've heard the governor at any press conference so far. This is going to be legislation that will make our state more affordable for everyone. It's going to help us meet our climate goals. It's going to empower communities to meet their residents' needs, to revitalize our main streets and our neighborhoods, improve the quality of life. I'm excited about it, you can tell, because it's really, really big. You were just on it, and it sounds like it was pretty wild. Yeah, I've got actually one of my my colleagues, Adam Riley, is covering that. So, uh, you know, tune in to hear him on GBH. But um, it is something that, you know, the advocacy community, um, faith groups like the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization has been doing a major housing campaign. They've been excited to see both the transfer tax and the public housing investments in this bill. There's a lot of excitement. Uh, People are seeing this as a big swing. And of course, I think as we talk about this more, as we see this move through the legislative process, we'll start to see you know, people who might not be as excited. The real estate industry has been opposed to the idea of transfer taxes. Um, One of the things in the bill is that it would allow certain accessory dwelling units, those kind of in-law apartments by right in single family zoning districts. And a lot of communities that have tried to pass ADU ordinances have seen major opposition from homeowners who live in single family district. You know, you've been seeing that in cities like Lowell. So I think there's going to be a lot of high energy discussions on uh, both sides of the issues here. Yeah, I wanted to stay on that for a minute because I was talking to some senators um, who had tried to put forward things like transfer fees, either through home rule petitions or their own bills in the past. And they really see this. um, I mean, they were using words like game changing and resetting the table on conversations on transfer fees, um, the accessory uh, dwelling units. Do you think that this can 
really actually change the conversation on that. Like, you know, they were using the example of how this Democratic governor was able to get a cut, not the full cut, to the short-term capital gains tax rate through a legislature that had resisted it when it came from a Republican predecessor. So they're like, well, maybe she can do it again. Do you think that her putting this forward does change the conversation to that effect? Well, I think so. And I think there's a a difference, too, that when you look at transfer taxes in particular, that was something Charlie Baker was really skeptical about. He was not a fan. He was not sure that that would have the impacts that its supporters say it would. So that just changes the math, having a governor who's on board with a policy like that. You don't need to convince two thirds of the legislature it's a good idea. You only need to convince half if you don't have to worry about overriding a, a gubernatorial veto. Of course, we see the, the Democrat leadership in both chambers like to pass things with a near unanimous, if not unanimous consensus. So it, it might not be as, as big a mathematical difference as otherwise, but it does, you know, have the potential to make it easier to get people on board. And I think the other thing in putting policies like that in a bill this big is I think about the the tax reform package that you mentioned, Lisa, I had talked to lawmakers who maybe didn't like the capital gains tax cut, the short-term capital gains tax cut, or didn't like the changes to the, uh, voter approved chapter 62F tax refund law, but they said that there was so much else in the bill that they did like, they couldn't vote against it. And I think that sets up a a question for lawmakers, what's worth going along with to get what else you like? This bill drops the same day as the Boston Globe started a big spotlight series on the cost of housing. And one of the stats that they mentioned in their in kind of their first story is that housing in Massachusetts is now 11 times more expensive on average than it was in 1980, and that that far outpaces the rest of the country just in terms of how much it's increased. So the question because of that and because of the experience that we're all living through is how much of an impact will this bill actually have and where will we feel it the most? I think the sense is that it'll chip away at the problems, but not fully solve them, right? If when you talk about the the housing shortage that we hear in Massachusetts, um, that's been estimated at around 200,000 homes. The Healy administration is talking about in the tens of thousands here. You know, the accessory dwelling units could potentially create around 8,000 uh, new units. So it's not a full scope thing. You look at public housing, there's a a backlog of needs there that's over 3 billion. So this would be a matter of taking aim at about half that. And, you know, housing officials in the Healy administration say that's a pretty big deal to cut that gap in half over five years if they're able to do it. So I I think there are substantial impacts. I don't think you're going to, you know, this bill is going to pass in some form and then all of a sudden you'll see your uh, rent decrease the next month or um, you know f- suddenly be able to find a home for sale in your price range but they, they are banking on these things paying off in the longer term and so some of the things that are in this bond bill are effectively just reauthorizations of existing programs because this is something as you said that comes up every five years or so But what's new in it or what investments did the Healy administration make that really goes beyond um, what had been set out in prior bond bills? One of the things that's new here is there's a proposal for a new tax credit aimed at developers who produce homes that are available to first-time homebuyers. It'll be interesting to see, too, 
what ideas the legislature might have up their sleeves, right? If there are new programs and new ideas they want to add in as it works its way through the process. And then, of course, one thing that we've been hearing a lot of, but that was notably not in this bill is, of course, rent control. So how did the issue of rent control come up in the course of negotiations on this? Yeah, what we've been hearing from the the Healy housing team so far is that we shouldn't read too much into the omission of uh, any rent control policies from this bill. They wanted to focus on really the, the production side here, they say. But, you know, I think that is something like transfer taxes that she signaled an openness to uh, allowing communities to adopt at the local level. Um, How much Healy is willing to put, you know, kind of her shoulders behind that and the full force of the corner office into that remains an open question. All right. Well, Katie Lannon, BFF of the pod of GBH News, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk to you guys. Thank you. On Monday... Governor Maura Healey announced that the state's emergency shelter system is reaching capacity as the flow of migrants continues. Here to explain the situation is, of course, our own Lisa Kaczynski. So, Lisa, tell us how bad it is at this point. So the number of migrant and homeless families in the emergency shelter system has been ballooning. It's effectively doubled over the past year, and it's now nearing, or possibly at this point, about 7,000 families or about 23,000 people. And what the governor said Monday is effectively that the emergency shelter system, there is not enough uh, money, service providers, and just physical space to continue to grow the shelter system or keep adding capacity past 7,500 families or about 24,000 people. So what she said is basically by the end of the month, the state is expecting to not be able to fulfill its duties under the right to shelter law to find immediate housing for people, whether they're migrants or homeless families who are residents um, of Massachusetts, be able to find housing for them. And of course, just to remind people, the right to shelter law is basically that in Massachusetts, if you are in Massachusetts and you fall into several categories, you basically have a right to shelter. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. But of course, where this has become complicated is that there literally is not enough space, is what the governor is saying at this point. So what happens when those two forces kind of run into one another? Like what happens to the people, assuming people continue to arrive after we reach that limit? That is really the big question right now. The governor said that the plan is to effectively move to a triage situation where people who have high needs, whether that's health or safety risks, are going to be prioritized for finding housing and others are going to be put on a waiting list. And the governor basically said that there's a few ways that they're going to try and move people out of the shelter system, people who are currently in it and have been in it for a long time to create space for new arrivals to try and keep it under that $7,500 cap. So there's a couple of new work programs to kind of give migrants job training while they're waiting for work authorizations and then connect them with jobs once they get those permits, you know, with the thought that getting them employment and money and resources will help move them out of the shelter system and into more permanent housing. And the administration's also going to be expanding housing programs um, such as home base and other things to, uh, again, to just kind of help people with their down payments and things on getting 
uh, rental housing or other types of housing. They're also going to be leaning on faith-based organizations and other kind of like nonprofits or non-government organizations to try and house people who come in above that 7,500 family cap. And it feels in some ways like hearing this on repeat or something in the sense that we're creating waiting lists and we're you know, going to try to find people housing and that sort of thing. I mean, we kind of know already that it's not like there's a bunch of housing that's just waiting for people to move in, right? Like, this is a bigger problem than just, you know, looking at new places for housing that doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, part of this shelter system issue is driven not just because of migrants, but also because of the lack of housing and the lack of affordable housing in this state. And those things aren't always talked about you know, together, but they are kind of two parts of the same problem right now. So yes, that is really one of the questions now is like, people are going into the shelter system, because they're struggling to find housing. And so how do they then get to housing on the other side of this as the shelter system reaches capacity? So is that force and the right to shelter law kind of come at one another and are going to collide at some point? Are the solutions that the Healy administration is contemplating so far legal, given the way that the law currently exists? That's the other big question right now. The governor says that she's not ending the right to shelter law, but she is effectively putting a cap on how many people can be served under it. And basically, yeah, that's something that, you know, lawyers, legal experts, uh, people within the state house, reporters, that's something that everyone is trying to get an answer to right now. And, you know, some organizations like Lawyers for Civil Rights have already said they're calling on the governor to rethink this. They're raising legal and humanitarian concerns. And they told me that they're keeping all legal options on the table. Um, Really, at this point, I think any way the state plays this going forward could result potentially in a lawsuit. Well, that certainly will add to the complexity of it. Um, Then, of course, there's the question of resources, and the state has already put up some money. Is the Healy administration or the legislature talking about the need for more resources at this point? So the governor had already requested another $250 million for the shelter system about a month ago, so before things got to the kind of dire point that they're at now. And lawmakers, well, I should say House lawmakers, because money bills start with the House, um, they've just been kind of sitting on this request. The House Speaker, Ron Mariano, says over and over that he just doesn't have the information that he needs or wants about what the total cost could be, how many people could come, even after talking to the Healy administration and meeting with uh, Department of Homeland Security officials who were in Massachusetts last week. So I asked him today on Tuesday, now that the governor's made this announcement, can we expect to see this money move? um, And does that amount change? And I asked if we could see that before the end of this month, which is when the shelter system is expected to hit that 7,500 family capacity. And he basically said that he would be surprised if that money moves. So it's unclear what help might be coming from the legislature. It's even more unclear what help, if any, might be coming from the federal government, which so far really has not provided the financial supports that the governor wants or the support with expedited work permits. Yeah, and of course, the federal government has their own issues, not least of which are (laughs) there's no Speaker of the House at the moment, at least as of when we're recording this. There doesn't seem to be a Speaker of the House, nor any particular sign that there will be one um, in the imminent future. Then how about the political element of it? Because, of course, there's pressures from all sides. And, you know, it seems as though 
everybody's got something to be irritated about how this has unfolded and who's done what about it. So how is the Healy administration dealing with the political element of this? Basically, the governor's kind of backed into a corner at this point. This has been a no-win situation for her for a long time, a situation that is straining her relationships within her party, with local officials, you know, mayors who are frustrated with this, um, who are the ones kind of on the front lines providing services and education um, and paying for it up front for a lot of these migrants and homeless families that are now, gosh, I think over 90 communities um, where there are hotels, motels, college dorms, and, you know, the pressures with the federal government and, you know, Healy, as we've talked about before, is effectively a surrogate for Biden's re-election campaign, but she also has to push the federal government for more help. And we're now sort of seeing with this latest announcement a little bit of backlash from Healy's left, um, from kind of vocal progressive activists who were saying, you just signed off on what's going to be a billion dollars in tax cuts and breaks and credits for some lower and middle class families, but also for, you know, heirs and for big companies. And that's money that you could have put toward the shelter system. And instead, you're just sending it back out the door to folks. And, you know, nothing's ever quite as clean cut as like this billion dollars could have been used for this other thing. But it is kind of another level of pushback or another blank of pushback that she's getting in what is just an incredibly difficult political situation for her that's really just starting to consume her first year in office. And one, of course, that has national elements, too, and one that's playing out in other states and between other states and the federal government. So certainly a story which is not going to end anytime soon and one we'll be checking back in on. So, uh, Lisa, I can promise we'll have you back on the horse race. And this brings us to our final segment, which this week comes to us from our cosmetic polling department. Steve. As our resident pollster, did you vote in the MBTA survey to decide the very important paint design for its very, very important, very, 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 very important new Green Line cars? I did vote in that particular survey. And basically what we're talking about is the MBTA did a survey about how the new Green Line supercars, as they're calling them, should be painted. And they had three possible designs. 16,300 votes were received, and the winning vote got just over 9,500 votes. So with three options, I'd call that pretty resounding. And of course, as the cosmetic polling department falls under my purview here at the Horse Race Global Media Empire headquarters, I had to vote. So what do we think of the winning design? Tell us every tiny, minute paint detail of it. Well, to be honest, I kind of have to scroll back and forth between them to really tell the difference between them. They're all sort of grayish, sort of greenish. They're fine. I mean, I I kind of agree with the people on social media where it's like, it doesn't make a huge difference to me what they look like. If they roll down the tracks, which are properly spaced, and they roll at the full speed to which they're entitled rather than three miles an hour, they could paint them literally any color, any color, any design, as long as they roll. Yeah, it was kind of the um, unfortunate for the MBTA, but they had to have seen it coming. Responses to this on Twitter or X or whatever we have to call that platform now, you know, was just, doesn't matter, just give me something that runs. So if you paint it this color, does that mean it'll run faster or better or not fall off the tracks? They did it to themselves. But, you know, kudos to them for, for trying to engage everyone in this process. Absolutely. Lisa, did you have an opinion on which one they chose? 
Apparently, I'm in the minority here. So, like, the one they chose is fine, but it's so dull. Like, there's so much gray and green and not enough bright white anything. I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll look better when it's not, like, a rendering. But I I don't know. It just feels kind of, like, dull. And you want to be excited that your tea car is actually arriving to take you somewhere, potentially, hopefully, maybe. I mean, to me, just the excitement of the arriving car is enough, <laughs> no matter what it looks like. If it rolls up at full speed at the time the countdown clock says and takes me where I'm going as fast as it possibly can, I'm happy with it. Anyway, speaking of things that went as fast as we possibly could, that is all the time we have for today. I'm Steve Kazella signing off with Lisa Kaczynski. Our producer is John Gee. Don't forget to give the Horse Race Review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Political Playbook and Commonwealth Magazine's Daily Download and reach out to us here at the Massing Polling Group if you need polls or focus groups done. For now, thank you all for listening and we will see you next week.